0: The object of design is almost the organization itself and their ways of working, or it could go all the way down to a touchpoint design of um, help us design a conversation between at this bank branch um, for this one moment of learning about this product. So no matter the scale, whether it's little or whether it's ecosystem wide thing, the thing that's always true is we're always understanding people, both customer and. Employee, service provider, and then going from there. The Giant Giant Podcast.
1: Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives and giant thinkers. Hello, Giants. This is episode number 49. Thank you for tuning in. Our guest today is a co-founder and principal at Meld Studios, an Australian design firm specializing in service design and interaction design. Her foundational beginnings stems from graduating with honors in psychology, master's in social sciences, and starting in information architecture. Her career has been focused on humanizing products and services down to the most detailed of interactions within them. She's an incredible woman, a mentor to me and many others, and I'm excited for you all to hear this. Some of the topics we spoke about include learning sign language from the age of three years old, how being inquisitive, feeling uncertain yet excited, helped her navigate student life and her early career, the definitions of design thinking, human-centered design, and service design, brain activity versus gut activity, her internal dialogue when faced with rejection, and so much more. If you've ever been fascinated with the collision of human behavior and design, this episode is for you. Now, before we begin, I just realized that it's been a whole year since releasing my second book, How to Get a Mentor as a Designer. I released it in October 2016 as a one-year anniversary gift for you all if you haven't purchased the book but would like to, buy the paperback or ebook version by the end of this month, October 2017, and I will send you the audiobook for free. Head to gettingamentor.com, take a screen grab of your receipt, email me at ram at and I will respond with the audiobook version for you for free. Once again, that's gettingamentor.com. Alright, let's dive in. I present to you the warm-hearted, generous and thoughtful, Jana Devalda. Jana Devalda, welcome to the Giant Thinkers podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show.
0: Thank you. This is very exciting.
1: Thank you for having me here. Uh, Some context for the listeners, both of us live in Sydney, but Jana and I actually met on Twitter of all places way back in 2013. Jana was looking for a, a digital designer for a UI project. We connected and I've been in and out of Meld Studios ever since.
0: And we are the better for it, Ram.
1: Oh, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a, a wonderful relationship and this place is amazing. We can talk more about Meld, um, throughout this uh, episode. Uh, but first off, Jana, I have an icebreaker question for you. I'm ready. If you were to pick something out of your pocket or purse other than coins or cash, what would it be and why is it important to you?
0: So I don't carry a purse very often, so maybe I'll I'll use my backpack as the carrying device. I would say, this is dorky, my iPad Pro and pencil. That's two things. But that's they, great. Come, they go together.
1: I can testify for uh, Jana's use of, uh, of the iPad. She, she introduced me to the pen, which is uh, the, is it, is it the pen?
0: They call it a pencil. Pencil. You know, that's a way of writing.
1: That's right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm impressed by Jana's um, shift to paperless.
0: Yes. Right? No, more, no more paper in my life. Just the old paper that I don't know what to do with now.
1: That's right. And that's what you use yeah. it for most, right?
0: I, I write you do and a lot draw of writing. and make everything in there. Perfect. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Yes, everyone should get on it. It is a <laughs> more efficient way to uh, to kind of just scribble as well and just like note take and totally. all that stuff.
0: And you can write all over PDFs and share things and you can plug it in and people can watch you live scribe. and
1: Right, which I didn't know until you showed me all this actually. So uh, thank you for that. Um, now, Jana, where would you say your expertise lies? Where does my
0: expertise lie? Um, I would say... In puzzle solving. Cool. Yeah, so it's not necessarily in a particular discipline. It's more in a something's going on and it needs some kind of solution and trying to figure out, mostly using a design process, to figure out how we should actually solve for it. But I feel like that's what I do all day. I mean it's probably what we all do every day in our work no matter what we're what we're doing. It's just that probably would be Is that a superpower? I if I had so. to wear the for sure. The superpower cape. That's I think that's what I love to do the most and that's what I seem to be doing the most of.
1: Yeah. And yeah. and obviously uh in the context of um Utilizing that problem solving, uh, as I've witnessed here in Meld Studios mm. firsthand, you know, from um, government to education verticals to um, to financial services, a whole mix, um, mm. and and some of those projects we would worked on together, and mm. um, and we can unpack that a little bit more. Um, I think in. in in uh, hindsight, it'd be interesting to dive into your childhood a little bit yeah. um, to make sense of that. Hmm. Um, how was your childhood like? How did you grow up?
0: So I grew up in Iowa, back in the states, right in the middle, corn, corn country.
1: Uh, so why do they call it corn country?
0: Because it is full of is corn. It just we cornfields all day. Feed, we feed the world, Ram. <laughs> well, one of the many places that feeds the world. Um, beautiful, beautiful. Landscape and country. Uh, so I grew up there um, in an interesting, not not quite usual childhood. My mother um, raised me by herself after my father died when I was when I was two, and he um, and she both taught at Iowa School for the Deaf. And so my mother was deaf since she was three. So wow. I grew up um, using American Sign Language and speaking English outside of the home. So I really grew up in two cultures, in two languages. Um, I grew up having to interpret and translate for my mother. In in very sort of, I don't mean it in now. I was just going to go in a very adult way, but just as a child, having to translate early adult conversations and adult emotions, and you know, going into the if my mother was upset about something and having to tell the salesperson that she was upset. And as a seven-year-old, you're just like, Oh my God, this is so embarrassing. Um, but the beautiful thing about it was I've, you know, I'm part of this, this deaf culture. Um, and that's been a really defining, a defining experience for me. Um, so I think if I take that little nugget of translation, um, my mother is an incredibly um accomplished woman always was involved in in government and in advocating for the deaf and she taught in a deaf deaf high school for 44 years and so she was a really great role model for me in terms of how to be involved in community and and being an activist in a very productive and accomplished way so yeah it was a very a very defining time, I think the something around the translating um having to be the go between her and other people or just just between the two worlds, I think is something that is sort of a thread for me throughout throughout my life, which I've only only really come to discover through going to therapy and not because I went to therapy because my mother <laughs> was deaf or anything, but just going through that ah, like that really makes sense, you started to solve problems early for for your mother and between and um and having to translate and so that that translation has just happened then i went to study psychology and like all throughout my career now has always been around the translation piece
1: yeah, yeah. that's huge a few things popped in my head as you were talking um the first is I often um, get this question from parents a lot, Mm. which is how do you build resilience Mm. and attitudes of gratitude Mm. or, um, you know, um, having um, just values that parents want to instill in their kids. Mm. And and when I reflect on that, I can only reflect on my own experience. Mm. But um, something that you said struck a chord in me, which was, you know, choice, mm. right? Like you didn't have a choice to speak freely and have a tantrum in the in the grocery store. Like you had to communicate that mm. through sign language. Mm. Wow. First of all, mm. like what a unique situation to be in, mm. but you didn't have a choice other than to communicate to your mother that way yeah. from the get go.
0: Well, and that's, and, and I find it an incredible privilege because I've had to you know, many people learn, you know, speak different languages at home versus out in the world when they're at school or at work. And so it's similar in that sense. However, um, it's unique in that uh, um, there's a lot of communication barriers, obviously, when you when you get out there. But in terms of being able to express myself, I'm very grateful for being able to express myself in in two languages. I attempted German. I wouldn't say that I I do very well unless I've had a little bit to drink, and then I'm really I'm I speak it beautifully. I'm sure, but normally I'll stick to these two. Yeah.
1: Do you recommend most people get some foundational understanding of sign language um, vocabulary? Would you call it that?
0: Well, I think um, a little little bit of trivia that most people don't know and. Are shocked by, which I think is interesting when they're shocked by this, is that there's different sign languages all around the world. And so there's American Sign Language. And here in Australia, there's Auslan, so Australian Sign Language. And the alphabet is two hands here. And in American Sign Language, it's one. So American Sign Language is different to British, is different to French, is different to Australian. So my mother comes here. I can't, I can't. Communicate with deaf people here. 1994. I'm in in um, where was I in in Dublin with my mother, and we met a deaf gentleman, a deaf Irishman, and he was quite oral. So he was he would sign, but my mom couldn't understand him. So then he would speak English to me, and then I would translate it into American Sign Language, and then she would sign back to me and then I would speak to him because like they couldn't even speak to each other.
1: And they're vastly different, would you say?
0: Yeah. I mean, there's some things where you can kind of go that seems similar and just like in spoken, spoken languages, there's roots of things that Mm. different languages share either, you know, they come from Latin or things like that. So they, they share a common source Mm. so you can kind of get the, the gist of what's being said, but otherwise, um, there's certain sign languages that derive from each other, like French and American. Fr- American derived for French, and Auslan derived from British. Yeah, interesting. So, yeah. FYI, now you know. That's good. You're going to win a trivia, trivia question someday.
1: <laughs> I, will, I will dive uh, into the topic a little bit more in yeah. my own time. Uh, <laughs> it sounds incredibly fascinating. Yeah. Um, so you graduated with honors in psychology at the University of Iowa, uh, then completed your master's in social sciences at the University of Chicago. Yeah. If you were to choose three or four standout words to describe that period of your life, what would they be?
0: Three, four standout words. I would say um, inquisitive, traveling. um, I would also say uncertain, as there was a lot of things that were going on for me um, in terms of which direction did I want to go with my career, what I wanted to do with my life. And excited.
1: Cool. Yeah. Is there a particular story that popped in your head or memory when you thought of those words?
0: Yeah, I was thinking a, a pivotal time in um in my undergraduate um time was when I went to Lancaster University in England and I studied for a year. And um I was studying more social psychology back at Iowa however they had a very heavy heavy um stance on cognitive psychology and so really around how do how do people make sense of things and make decisions and and so i i weirdly got into this this thing where i was um doing an honors project there in cognitive psychology and making things on hypercard to test people's perceptions of how they make decisions and So that was really eye-opening. But I was just thinking also about, I I got really nerdily into leadership. I started reading every book in the library about leadership, and I don't know why. Um, I actually, I cannot, this is the the part of memory that that fails you sometimes. I don't remember what was the trigger that said, I'm going to read every book on the shelf about leadership, or that even was a thing you could read about. But I started reading about that, and I was so inspired at that time. Yeah. So that was, a, that was an interesting time because it was, I'd never been out of the country before. And, you know, it was a quite a big, okay, I'm going to go out of the country for a year kind of first time trip. Um, so it was a very difficult time, but wow, what a growing time. And that's, the, that's sort of been a theme for me is that, that even though I'm afraid and I might be anxious about these things, taking on these, these new, these new opportunities as they come about have been really transformational mm.
1: for me. When you said the word uncertain. Yeah. How did you cope with that and uncertainty? Was it the fact that your inquisitiveness, which is the first word you mm-hmm. said, was that kind of overtaking the uh the balance, would you say? Or or what mm. what drove your uncertainty to kind of go, no, hold on, this is this this is good.
0: I don't know how much the uncertainty feeling was because I really felt uncertain or I felt that I had, I, I should feel uncertain because of the societal sort of expectations of you're in college and now you should be figuring out your, your career path and what's happening next. And if you, um, you feel this pressure and whether it's actually real or not, I felt this pressure of, I need to figure my shit out. Mm. And I didn't, know exactly what I wanted to do or exactly where I wanted to go. I was exploring actually getting my PhD in psychology and I was sort of starting to imagine myself being a professor and going you know having that kind of a life Um, and I felt the pressure to sort of make the plan and plot the course and sort of know like in two years you'll be here and in five years you'll be here and so I think For whatever reason, I felt like I needed to have the plan and I didn't have the plan. But I was inquisitive enough to know I knew what I loved and was taking advantage and being opportunistic with things, but I didn't quite. So that was a tension of, I don't know, but I want to keep exploring. But no, you have to get a job and you need to figure out your life because that's what you're supposed to do, right? So Mm. that's the tension.
1: When I look at your um, background, it's been... um... Quite, how would you call it? Um, diverse. Mm. It's it's um, something that I think uh, for me, I always get um, surprised that mm. when I when I, for example, um, your your mother Shirley, right, mm. um, when she first came in here, um, and I'd known you then for maybe two or three years, I didn't know that mm. about your mum, and mm. I actually didn't know until you were doing the sign languages Mm. out of nowhere, Um, (laughs) you know.
0: What's this, mysterious? Yeah.
1: I was like, man, there's just so many layers. Um, So when you were studying those areas, uh, how do you think – the degrees that you had um, studied helped you most in pursuing your path from information architecture to interaction design to now service design more than ever. Mm-hmm. How has that fed in to, as you said, you're not doing the professor, mm-hmm. educational teaching mm-hmm. angle. You're now have gone a, a different way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How has you know psychology and social sciences? allowed you to um pursue this area because i remember we did A, Q&A, for example at uh, academy Xi, and there was a there was a, a guy there who was a bit worried mm. um uncertain i
0: didn't study i didn't study, design. He didn't
1: study design he was studying psychology mm. and then you said i actually studied psychology mm. so how has it helped you yeah. with what you do now
0: so I think interestingly, um, when I came out of grad school, I was I was certain by then that I didn't want to continue um, getting my PhD, and I wanted to do something more applied. And it was around the time of the um, two thousand so dot com um, boom, and there was this real opportunity to to come in at a design angle using psychology because it was all around user experience and. The core of that was really trying to understand how do people make decisions. And and at that time, it was like, how do people think and feel and what do they do? and What do they do offline so we can translate that online? And so it was all about human behavior, um, feelings, emotions, activities, tasks. And so it was through that process that I actually then learned about the process of design, which you know, even at that time, even though user experience was coming was coming up um into the scene, it was still very much a transactional sort of human computer interaction um, based um, task oriented a b, c d linear. And so it was this this perfect collision of human behavior and design that I feel like I came in to a point when design was really starting to take on more of a social sciences bent right so the human human centered design was really coming in um and so for me it was a no brainer it was uh it's an applied environment i can learn from the people around me who are design um trained and I get to bring in this this aspect of it, and luckily I've worked at places where I got to then learn how to do things hands on myself so um I wasn't just doing the research part of it and then somebody else was doing the design I actually got to go from research into the the making of things with that insight in mind so I got my hands dirty really making making things quite early so um I think what's what's great now is that they're actually you know many design programs are are teaching more around psychology and anthropology and we're seeing this collision a bit more. Um, however, I'm really, really thankful that I have, I have that aspect sort of grounded and sort of deep in theory and then can apply it. Whereas I think if I would have come in at a different angle, I I maybe would only learn it, learn it sort of superficially um, so I'm really thankful that I was able to come in come in that way, but I'm seeing more and more programs are getting more into the theory and are are doing more of that multidisciplinary um training, which I think is critical actually for any job that we're doing anymore i think I think understanding people we'll call it soft skills. I think it's more than just how to have a meeting and how to have a difficult conversation like I think understanding human behavior pretty critical for a lot of us in, in any specialty
1: it's so amazing after I have discussions whether it's you know sitting with a guy on a plane who has no idea about um, uh, design definitions or disciplines and going that deeper sort of um, uh, unpacking of of the the, the tool that design is as a problem-solving um, you know discipline um, the very first thing they always say is, "Wow, you really need to know a lot about psychology." Yeah. Did you study psychology? And I go, "Nope." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so.
0: But you've had to. You've had to learn it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to ask you next was um, if anything shocked or surprised you as you were looking for opportunities and hunting for your first job um, that perhaps wasn't addressed in university.
0: The only thing I remember at university around jobs was you could go into the career center if you wanted to, and you could take the Myers-Briggs exam, or you can take the what color is your parachute to try to understand what, um, what types of jobs are available. And perhaps things have changed now. I hope, hopefully they have. The thing that really shocked me was that classes were around learning particular topics. Um, but at least in the, stu- the studies that I took on, nothing was really talking about how that then becomes applied into to jobs. Now, I know some programs are very much around learning systems and tools that are very job-focused and almost go to the opposite end of the spectrum of I'm preparing you for a particular job rather than getting you grounded in the theory that you can then apply to anything. So... I think that there should probably be some happy medium of, you know, when I see, um, even with graphic design now, like you learn the tools of the trade, but do you really understand kerning? And do you really, do you really understand typography and color theory? Or do you understand it only in as far as the tool (laughs) teaches you? And maybe I'm not being fair to, to some programs, but I think there's something around, take the tool away. Can you do your craft? And I think, There's something there around, um, separating expertise from the tools so that you have it, you've got it in your gut, not just in your brain, you know, so I can design from the gut, not the brain. So I think when we design from the brain, we're going through the design process and we're doing the tasks and the activities that you're supposed to do air quotes in design and, um, when you're just thinking about design, you're just thinking about what's the next thing I have to do. And you're not necessarily feeling the design process, which is, wait, we need to stop, we need to pivot, we need to go here, we need to go there. So I think, I think that's the danger. Um, And I think for me, when I was just finding my first job, it was just trying to figure out how do I, I was at the other end of the spectrum of, I've never worked in an environment applying psychology. So I have to figure out how do I actually do this? Whenever you tell people you studied psychology, at least when I was studying psychology, people would say, what are you going to do with (laughs) that? What can you do with that? Right. And so I would love to arm people with, you can do these things. I think it has to be much better now yeah
1: you, you hit the nail on the head um, especially when it comes to context yeah right I think it's like how do you use these things now yeah. that we've taught you this skill set yeah. or or this technical ability yeah um, psychology or graphic design or product design anything really um, because it wasn't until I had my first job at Ogilvy that I straight after college that I um, realized there was this thing called big ideas mm. you know? <laughs> and who knew That's you know right. and yeah you're right it's like hold on why am I doing this uh, you know kerning and polished thing and you know the typography is yeah. going to break this way or or, or not and um, and it, it really not until I was on the job did I realize how closely um, business thinking, needed to be considered in my design decisions and also obviously because of budget and time and all that real world stuff but then also um relevance to the end user mm. right is really what we're we're kind of um always Intending to to move um, towards not getting lost into the whole um, aesthetics or the, the 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 beauty of it or or it sounds good. That's right. Um, so that's really interesting. So um, Jana, what was a tough decision would you say that comes to mind when you were navigating your way in your early career, um, or if there weren't any tough decisions as such when you were navigating? Um, maybe on the other end of the spectrum, was it? Was there something that made your navigation on the career landscape easier by Mm. someone or something?
0: Mm. What would you say? I would say that a tricky thing happened after I got my first job, which was I was laid off. Okay. Um, Please share. (laughs) (laughs) So I was laid off because it was, as you recall, I entered in the dot com boom and I exited in the dot com bust. So that was in 2001 and, uh, oh, that was devastating. Even though I could rationally understand that it wasn't necessarily about me and it was just a business decision and they were, they were cutting the company. Um, you absolutely take it as it's about you. And I remember being in the room when they, when, when the HR woman, who was a lovely person, Said, you know, we have to let you go. Because this was the day where everybody, like, everybody was coming in to find out, are you in, are you out? So it was it was a wonderful day anyway. <laughs> um, and she gives me the papers and you're out. And I said, but my client, I have this project and it's halfway through. And like, I was worried. <laughs> I was worried about the work. <laughs> it hadn't quite occurred to me that I should be worried about myself, <laughs> that I just lost my job. Uh, but that was... That was so hard. I'm so glad it happened because what it did for me was, you know, I had to go through a process of then finding the next thing, but having to pull myself up and get out of the the funk of it, especially first job out of grad school. It was really very um, emotional. But when I did, I found a job where I was the only designer on staff. And I have to say that was a pinnacle experience for me because, I I was design and I had to, you know, I was doing all of the information architecture and the design of, um, trying to figure out how does uh, a textbook company distribute um, electronic textbooks, which is a new area that they were going in, and they looked to me and said, "Can you design a system that does that?" And I said. Sure. <laughs> sure again. But it was that moment where I had to do it and there's nobody behind me that I could go, "Can you help me do this?" Like so I had to completely step up. I had to be the voice of teachers and students and I had to draw things and I had to test things and I got to work with amazing producers around content and it was such a defining moment for me because I had I didn't have any crutches. I had to do it myself. And that's why I think from moving on from that, like that would be the biggest piece of advice I would give to anybody is to just put yourself in some some challenging, uncomfortable situations because the the growth trajectory will just be immense, hopefully. Hmm. How did you figure that out?
1: Did you consult or did you more go, well, logically I need to speak to parents and teachers and students, and then I will need to document this data in some format, and then I will need to then validate some of these um, ideas or solutions.
0: I had to figure that all out because I didn't have, so I had a year under my belt from before doing websites but I had to figure out so I had I had some structure around how to go and talk to people and interview people and understand where they're trying to get to but it was back to that problem solving piece and and it was back to trying to understand people and trying to understand business which is actually a group of people right and what are you trying to do as a business and why and how and and what does it mean to distribute and how do you distribute textbooks to like physical textbooks today can we learn from the offline behavior and bring it online and so i had some some of those structures of trying to understand the behavior of today to see can we apply that here so that people's mental models aren't completely going crazy in terms of what is this thing i needed to design something that felt familiar and um i needed to design something that was simple enough for the company to be able to talk, like sell and to, to be able to talk to. So um I wish I had some sort of like there was this guidebook that I used, but I really had to, I had to feel my way through. And I think that's sort of the beauty of um design for me is there's some there's a backbone of understanding and exploring and then articulating and realizing. And for me, I know there's an end that I'm trying to get to at each of those stages, but what methods I use can change based on the situation, right? And so I think, I think that was sort of my earliest lesson of, I know where I'm trying to get to, and I'm just going to try some stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and spot see. on. And I, and I love, you, you, were, you just answered my uh, question in advance there are multiple methods, there are multiple ways yeah. to um, get to that um, end solution or at least to improve it and then you can always revisit it That's right. and um, see how that avenue went.
0: And that's back to the gut thing, right, mm. is that um, it's like if you um, are trying to memorize a song or memorize a dance um, and if you try to think, okay, the next step I count one, two, three, four, and then the next step I do this and the next step I do this, it's all – up here in your mind. Like it's, it's such a, it's a brain activity rather than a gut activity. And I think the more you can start to make things, and I don't mean gut in terms of just go with what you feel. I mean, you really, you feel, you feel the right things and it's, it's not just about intuition. It's around, I know where I'm trying to get to and I'm trying in, there's some science to it, but there's a lot of art to this, right, in yeah. terms of trying to get to the right place. And I think when we become too regimented in this is the process and we must do it this way, we're never going to get to the right place because that right way may not be the right way for what you're solving for. And so, you know, and I would try to reach out and think this is where IXDA started to be a huge part of my life was because I didn't have a community around me at work. I needed to create community around me, and so I started Chicago IXDA. Shortly, um, shortly thereafter, as a local group, which has exploded now. You know, however many years later, I won't count because
1: Interaction that... Design Association for those that don't know and that's it's right. globally now. It's global,
0: yeah. yeah. I think that's that's the. If you have enough of a backbone to know where you need to go to, and I mean backbone of the design process of mm-hmm. where you need to get to um with experience, you're gonna start to get more more ways of doing it. but I would say probably I'm creating new ways all the time to get there, and I think that's why i'm I still love what I do is because I don't wanna work in a factory, I don't wanna do the same things all the time, and the same things all the time don't always create the best results and so that's the that's been really enjoyable
1: what do you think is missing in design education today
0: the biggest thing i think is missing in design education is the ability to change quickly
1: Mm.
0: i think the market is changing so quickly and the way that universities are just any kind of organization that does design education or education full stop it's so has their own bureaucracies that don't allow them to shift curriculum quickly enough. And so you've got places that are still trying to catch up and they're coming and talking to us about what should we be doing? What kind of skills are you looking for in young designers? And we say, we need these types of things, but I know that that's going to take them three years to get into the curriculum. And so this is why I think I want design education to be able to shift faster um, and to be more responsive to the environment. However, I also have empathy to the fact that that's a challenging situation and that really it becomes to us as individuals to have to augment our own education that universities or go to any kind of organization that, that gives you a 10-week program or whatever, they're giving you a base. And if you only rely on the thing that's happening in whatever school or education environment, like you're going to be missing a lot of beats. Like you have to be augmenting around you. It's not enough. It's not enough anymore to just go in and get the degree or to get the, the certificate.
1: I certainly think it's also not... And a a band-aid fix answer um, that someone can solve right away and and secondly I also think it's not so formal of an education like when I look at mm-hmm. my most um, leapfrogging you know light bulb moments that I carry now in my tool belt um, from a design thinking point of view it's not even been about the the class that i took as such yeah. it was it was the the conversations i had the people i met along the way their stories it was the environments that i was in it was the 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 understanding of the empathy piece of putting myself in different roles mm. um which i think uh are all clues i suppose mm. but uh, uh thank you for your for your two cents there mm. um this is a question that uh, I know that you'll, uh, you'll jump on because uh, you're so uh, open with this. And, and this is one of the things I appreciate about you. Um, what's the internal dialogue like um, when you were rejected, perhaps, like you said, when you first got laid off, um, or maybe there's a particular project that didn't go to plan or even a proposal for a project now that you really wanted? Yeah. What's the self-talk like?
0: Oh, painful. <laughs> um, I think this is something I will always struggle with. I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion of um, I will always be hard on myself. Like it's been that way my whole life. And I'm certainly, you know, I'm 42. Am I 42? I'm 42. I don't count anymore. Just whatever. <laughs> but I don't. You know, there's just certain traits about yourself where you just go, okay. Um, I call myself a um, perfectionist procrastinator <laughs> because um, I have so much anxiety about doing things well that if I'm coming into an activity that I feel like I won't do well, I will procrastinate doing it until I've had the pressure to have to do it. And then the time Crunches there. And so then I have to do it and then I do it. And then if it doesn't hit the mark, I have this like weird way of saying, well, it's because I didn't have enough time. It's not because I'm inadequate in any way, shape or form. So I'm well aware of my, <laughs> my, my ways of, of working. And I think the thing for me is this year in particular has just had been is to be quite open about that with others as well, because I think that I came into a bit of a crisis moment at the beginning of this year where I felt like, um, you know, I'm one of the owners of the company, I'm running it and people look up to me. And at the end of the day, if I, if nobody has an answer, I have to have an answer. And so you get into this mindset of, I have to know what I'm doing and I have to be expert and I have to be perfect at it. And, um, it doesn't leave a lot of space for having things go bad publicly. And I was having this um, tension inside where I just was like, I can't act like I I know everything anymore. And the minute I did, it was kind of an unfreezing moment with everybody else of like, oh, Jan is human and she has the same kinds of worries that we do. And, And it's actually been really empowering for me and for other people to kind of just and strengthening to be vulnerable and just to say you know what i didn't i didn't know what to do and so i tried something and it didn't work um or i didn't do that because i was afraid to or hey i'm afraid right now could you help me and oh my god the strength that you get in being vulnerable it's it's such a paradox is that the right way to use paradox i'm just going to use it that's what i mean it just felt like wow in being and being true and open with how i feel i get so much more strength out of it and it actually weirdly frees me from having to be perfectionist because i can just own being human and i can actually take the advice that i give everybody else in the world except myself yeah and i think that's that's the thing is what i've had to do now is i have people around me that will tell me the advice that I would tell them in the same situations, but I hear it from them. <laughs> I don't hear it from myself, but then I have to do that for them as well.
1: Yeah. right. And not until you actually try it and you actually go through that. Um, not until you actually go through that motion of being vulnerable, will you find power in it? Mm. And, and as cheesy as it may sound, it's so true. Like, for example, a lot of people that, um, I consult to, say, how do I build a personal brand? Mm. Okay, a personal brand. And I'm like, well, how personal are you? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Right? And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, are you curating only what looks good? Yeah. Or are you actually sharing real stories?
0: Yeah. Because. Authenticity. Authenticity. Yeah. You got it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. We can, we can talk about that for, for, for many, many
0: uh, (laughs) hours, Um,
1: uh, but I'd love to talk about meld studios. Um, For those that haven't crossed paths with your design firm, what does meld offer and what makes meld so unique?
0: So it's interesting. We've been around for uh, almost eight years now. And the way that we position ourselves is that we want to improve people's lives and the way that we've chosen to do that is you know if you look around you and you look at our lives are full of interactions and intersections with the experiences and services that organizations provide so think about your day today just you know sitting in this room or how how i got here you know transport utilities my home the school I dropped my children off at, like there's so many organizations that impact us. And so we really focus on how do we help organizations to humanize the experiences that they're giving to their customer. And customer in quotes being can be citizens, patients, students, consumers, you know, in more commercial senses. So customers in that broader sense but also even more importantly is also thinking about the people in the organizations themselves how do we create experiences for them to let them deliver the best things that they can to the to their customers and so we can't just look at customer experiences for anything without looking at the organizational experience it's just if you don't do both it won't it won't work you have to be designing for both things so we work with organizations to basically use design to solve problems or opportunities. Mm. And those can scale from we as an organization want to be more customer centric. So how do we need to be working? So the object of design is almost the organization itself and their ways of working. Or it could go all the way down to a touch point design of um, help us design a conversation between at this bank branch um, for this one moment you know, around learning about this product. Mm. So no matter the scale, whether it's little or whether it's ecosystem wide thing, the thing that's always true is we're always understanding people, both customer and employee, service provider, and then going from there. Yeah.
1: It's something that I really wanted to highlight and I'm glad you expressed it in such a um, a very informative and easily digestible way that, um, I, I personally learned that from you in that, um, when we look at this so-called design experience, it's not just the customer experience layer, mm-hmm. nor is it a single interaction. It's mm-hmm. multiple interactions mm-hmm. and who else is involved in that, um, in that engine room. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, the big one that, you know, that I hadn't considered prior to 2013 was this whole um, thing about, well, hold on, what are the processes Mm. and artifacts and um, systems Mm -hmm. that need to be implemented from the organization's point of view? Um, It's not by accident that a customer feels unhappy Mm. about, um, you know, their, their, train ride That's right. or or their ticketing experience or or whatever it is um which leads into to this which um I'd love to personally know your answer to um what would you say service design is or well, you may have already answered it
0: um so service design for me is literally the design of services um i think that sometimes service design as a thing is is almost used interchangeably with um, design thinking. And so let me just quickly clarify how I, how I talk about this. Design thinking is basically a, is using a, a human-centered design process to solve a business problem, any problem, large or small. So it is almost topic agnostic. Um, service design would be using a design process to design a service. And that's something that I'm really passionate about now is actually investigating and trying to almost define or create a vocabulary for around us around service as an object of design, so if you are a furniture designer and you design chairs or tables, you have to understand a lot about the materiality of what you're designing, the purpose of like what is a table meant to do, what role does it play in somebody's life um what is the best you know what makes it a table? What makes it not a table? And so I want to do the same thing for services and understand the materiality of services. Because I think sometimes we we kind of just talk about, oh, we have these end-to-end experiences and there's a customer experience and there's an organizational experience. But I think there's, there's more there that if we become more expert in the actual materiality of what makes us a good service – wow, then we can start to have a shared vocabulary. And not only will designers have that vocabulary, but the product owners who have a product that they have to have a, a service around or um, service delivery people or people on the front line will start to have a language around, around service as well. So something I'm really passionate about and really want to clarify that if I'm an interaction designer, the materiality and the fabric of my design is interactions. And that might be digital interactions. And so the materiality might be online. Um, but it may be in-person interactions too. And so I think anything you put behind design, blank design, is it's the specific design of that that mm. thing.
1: Yes. Um I'm uh totally on board with what you said. It's something that um Fascinatingly enough, I just came from the optometrist, and we were having the same conversation, but within his industry. Mm. where well, he was saying that you know the optometrist he was talking to halfway across the world wasn't understanding the vocabulary that he was using, which he thought was quite standard mm. um, within his peers. Mm. Um, but that's yeah, it's it's totally on that, on that
0: same. And way there's both. a lot of language around services in more technical ways. I don't think that there's a language around services from a design perspective. I think are some people who are writing about it and use it. But I think a lot of times we write about service design, which is the act of designing services rather than around services themselves. Got it. And so I'm really focusing, my little pet project right now is really focusing on services themselves rather than how we design services.
1: Yeah. It makes great. my
0: brain hurt, but I'm I'm having That's fun.
1: Well needed. <laughs> yes. Um, advice for those looking to start or move towards a career in service design?
0: Um, I think no matter where you are, wherever you're working right now, as an example, you need to be thinking about the experience of customer and of the organization. So if you are in a job where you're designing a website, start using that vocabulary, start learning about sort of both sides of the equation, understand that that website is either it is the the only interface with that organization or it is one part of many interactions with that organization. And so start, I think start having that vocabulary wherever you are and start trying to bring in that sort of human-centered design process to whatever it is that you're designing and thinking about what role it's playing in the service. But I think also just starting to be able to see the difference between a product and a service and getting familiar with the fact that those are often sometimes you're designing a product and there's a service around it. And I think it's just Starting to create your own vocabulary around that and then starting to find companies that either, you know, have services that they're trying to sell and trying to go in-house and start to help them design those things or come to a consulting type company like ours. Like solid, ours. Solid advice. <laughs> um,
1: are there any books courses, blogs or resources that come to mind that uh, every aspiring service designer should be aware of. I know you've prepped some.
0: Well, I think that this is um I have a couple that are probably some are quite broad. Um so one would be um I love this book um by Dan Hill, um Dark Matter and Trojan Horses, which is a strategic design vocabulary. Such a great read. It's not a long read, but it's a powerful read in terms of giving you a sense of how we can be using design as a strategic driver with business. So really, really important one. Um, In terms of um, that other one, this one um, is a great one around service design from insight to implementation. And this is a Rosenfeld book um, by Andy Pallain and LeVron's lovely and Ben Reason, um, all great thinkers in service design um, and lovely people. So that's a, I think that's a very awesome. specific, great one
1: to read. I will link that in the uh, blog post um, and show notes. Uh, a few more questions before we wind down, Jana. A question I ask all my guests, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Jana Devalda, perhaps the Jana finishing high school, what would you tell her?
0: Keep going. I wouldn't change anything, just keep taking advantage of the opportunities, and I'd also whisper that it's okay you don't know what's going to happen next perfect, yeah
1: uh who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Uh, that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential?
0: Uh, my mom, without a second of a doubt um she's a woman who has Accomplished so much and has so many people that look up to her, and I can only only hope I get a fraction of that of that feeling.
1: Big love to uh, Jana's mom, uh, Cheryl. <laughs> and what's next for you, Jana, with everything you're involved in for the rest of the year and beyond?
0: Um, I get to go and talk at the World Design Congress about service as an object of design in Montreal, which I'm really looking forward to, and also get to go to. Malaysia and talk about that as well. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm hoping that I find time to actually be able to do more research and writing about it myself, because I've started a medium publication about it. I'm just finding a tension between wanting to write perfectly versus just getting stuff out there. So it's my own little personal thing to get over. See, I'm being vulnerable. There you go. Yeah. Can I tell you my dream last night? It's it. clean, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so freaky that I, but I think it just encapsulates. Please. I was in a place where people had come to hear about design. And I was going to tell them about design. And suddenly I'm, so I'm talking about design and I'm making the distinction between service design and services and objects of design. And suddenly I realize I'm in a car and the windows are up. And they're all standing around and they can't hear me, but I'm talking. And I had this moment of, I have to open the windows for them to hear me. Oh. Huh? How about that for a dream? That is special. Like, Jana, you know what you're talking about? Yeah. Open the freaking window (laughs) so people can hear it.
1: And isn't it funny that to open the window, it's from your side of the door?
0: Yeah. I have to open the window because they're all there waiting. Loving it. Yeah.
1: Well, look, I hope uh this certainly um will add to that uh intent. Yes, thank you. Um being on the show. Um mm. how can listeners get in touch with you online? Um you can
0: find me at Twitter at J Devilder or um at um Medium at my um service frameworks publication.
1: Awesome. I'll yeah. add these uh, links on the uh, post on giantthinkers.com. Jana, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. The uh, opportunity to, to be one-on-one with you um, is something that I always cherish. I've learned so much from you and uh, I'm glad that I was finally able to interview you.
0: I love it. Love you, Ram. Thanks again for
1: hanging out on the Giant Thinkers podcast. Your listenership means the world to me. Sharing the knowledge and inspiration from guests like Jana feed us all in so many ways. And speaking of sharing, please forward this on to a friend or a loved one if you feel it'd benefit them. Giantthinkers.com will take them right to it. And if you've listened to a few episodes that have truly helped you, Please let me know via an iTunes review. I read every single one. I also screen grab them and send it to past guests of the show if you mention their names in the review. And reviews help me keep the show going for the simple fact that someone on the other side of this mic that I'm speaking into is being impacted in a productive way. That's what's most rewarding for me. So I invite you to head to giantthinkers.com slash podcast review to listen leave a review on iTunes. A little teaser for our next guest, he is one of Australia's leading and most experienced doctors in optometry and vision science. We cover a ton about eye health and what we should be doing to take care of our precious eyes. Before you race off, a quick reminder to check out gettingamentor.com. I'm throwing in the audiobook version for those that purchase the paperback or ebook version by the end of this month of October. It's a one-year Anniversary gift just for the listeners of the show. Email me your receipt, ram at giantthinkers.com, and I'll send you the audio book for free. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Jana who said Put yourself in some challenging, uncomfortable situations, the growth trajectory will be immense.